Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. And so you can see that in the middle of this passage, Isaiah says, many were astonished at this servant, at this person. And so I'm going to build this message around that word, astonished. I want to make you astonished at the person of Christ. Now we'll see there's three things that make us astonished at Jesus. The first thing is obviously his sufferings. He's greatly, he's, his, his sufferings are so great, they're beyond human semblance, Isaiah says. So his sufferings are astonishing. The other thing we see is that Isaiah says he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So he has an astonishing exaltation, and we'll talk a bit about that. And then last but certainly not least, well, we'll spend most of our time, he has an astonishing message that folks just don't get, and neither do we. So we're going to look at his astonishing sufferings, and then his astonishing exaltation, and then last but not least, his astonishing message. Are you ready to be astonished? Come on, I need someone back there saying, yes, sir, yes, sir. Anyone want to do that, HJ? Okay. First thing, let's talk about his astonishing sufferings. It's clear, right? We all know that Jesus suffered astonishingly. I mean, if I could paint a picture, I, I could, if I was really eloquent, I could tell you a little bit about what happened on that night when he was betrayed by Judas and taken to an illegal trial. And then they brought him to um, Jerusalem where they beat him. I often think that these men that beat Jesus were athletic Roman centurions. I mean, these, you know, are men. And they're pounding on the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're spitting on him. And they're slapping him like a girl, humiliating him. And they put the crown of thorns on his head and they're mocking his kingdom and they're hitting him with staffs. And then after they humiliate him beyond what anything you can imagine, they bring him to be whipped. And I know you've probably heard this before, but the Romans had this, this whip. Sometimes you hear it called the cat of nine tails. It's, it's a piece it's a whip with a bunch of pieces of leather coming out of it, and inside that leather is razor-sharp metal and glass tied in there. And the goal of this whipping would not be just to whip him, but to rip his skin off of his bones. So they would whoosh, hit him and then rip the skin right off. If you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion, he focuses in on that a lot. You see these shards of glass and metal go into his skin and yank right off. In fact, the actor who played um, Jesus in that film, he wore like this leather protective thing on his back so that when the centurions would whip him, um, he, he wouldn't get hit by the metal and the glass. And he said, even with the leather on, just the blow of those nine leather pieces would take the breath out of me every time. And then he says at the end, he says, but there was this one time where the guy hit me and I wasn't expecting it and it wrapped around my side and yanked some skin off of my inside right here. 
He said, it was so painful, I thought I was dying. I thought I was going to die. He said, and that was just one hit, and it was an accidental hit. It wasn't done on purpose. I can't imagine what 39 blows done on purpose would have felt like. Jesus' sufferings physically were astonishing. Then, can you imagine, after being beat like that the first time, and then being whipped with these shards of metal and glass, then being asked to carry this piece of wood up the mountain, up the hill, up Golgotha. We know that the piece that he would have carried would have been just that top cross piece, but you might not have thought of this. That piece of wood would have been made out of the finest, heaviest kind of lumber that they could get their hands on. And the reason why is because the Romans executed people all the time. And so they would have reused, recycled that piece of wood. So it would have been a very heavy board. And it probably would have been saturated with hundreds of men's blood. And Jesus was asked to carry that up the hill where they nailed him to it and left him to asphyxiate on his own blood. Now, I could paint that picture for you the best I could. I could show you a clip from a movie. I could show you paintings from the Renaissance. But I'm pretty sure you, if you think about it, you are astonished at his sufferings. Isaiah says everyone will be astonished at his sufferings. In fact, Isaiah says he would be marred beyond human semblance, which means this. Not that he would be marred beyond the semblance of a particular human, but he would be marred beyond the semblance of a human. Does that make sense? So it's not that people walked by and said, who's that? Is that Bill? Is that Jesus the carpenter? Instead, people walked by and said, is that a man? What is that? He's been marred beyond the semblance of a human being. Now, if you think about that, Jesus's sufferings are physically astonishing. Can I get an amen? Okay. But have you ever wondered about his spiritual sufferings. What would it be like for Jesus to take on the sins of the world spiritually? The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin. And I wonder if we can even grasp the weight of that. Here's one thing I've been told, that the definition of hell is the separation from God, the absence of God, being, being abandoned from God. Well, if there's one person who ever walked the face of this planet who knew what complete intimacy and communion with God was like, it would be Jesus, right? I mean, for crying out loud, he lived with him in heaven and he humbled himself to come down on this earth. And then when he came down to this earth, he, it was clear from scripture, from the gospels, that he had communion with his father, that he only did what his father told him. He only said what his father told him to say. He had intimacy and communion with his father. But then upon the cross, when he took on the sins of the world, the Bible says that God the father turned his head and Jesus cried out in agony, why? Why have you forsaken me? So if the definition of hell is separation from God, and if Jesus took on the sins of the world, he was separated from God, then you can say that Jesus went through hell for your sin. He endured hell spiritually, and that's an astonishing amount of suffering. 
In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism or the Heidelberg Confession, in answering this difficult question, you may have heard this difficult question before, but why does the Apostles' Creed say that he descended into hell? We can argue about that for the rest of our lives. We will never know the answer until we get there. Heaven, that is. When we get to heaven. Um, (laughs) But here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says about that. The reason why that's important is because it teaches me that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Jesus endured hell for us so that we would not have to endure hell. His physical suffering is astonishing. But his spiritual suffering is even more astonishing that I think we could not grasp. Here's maybe a way that we can begin to grasp it. Let's just do Im- imagine for a second Jesus on the cross dying, not for the sins of the world, but just for your sins. Imagine that for a second. Jesus is not dying for the world. He's only dying for you. Do you know the weight of your own sin? Have you ever considered the weight of your own sinfulness. Can you even grasp it? I love what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says, I don't think you can grasp it. (laughs) He says, have you ever felt that? No, your own sin? No, you can't. Because if you had felt it, the full weight of it, that is, then you would have to be in hell. The only way you would know the full weight of your own sin is if you were enduring it in hell. So then think about this. How old are you right now? (laughs) How much weight of sin do you cost Christ right now? How long do you think you'll live? I'm hoping to live a long life. I don't know about you, but let's say I sin times a day. That might be even a low estimate. 100 times a day times 38 years. It's like 38,000 million trillion sins, right? That's a lot. And I hope to live longer. Just your own sin is enough weight to crush you, and definitely to crush the Lord. Now take that number, whatever number you picked in your head, I picked 38,180. And multiply it by just the number of people in your family. Those people you, you know, are somewhat responsible for. Can you even begin to grasp how heavy the weight of that sin possibly could be? And we've not even begun to talk about, well, how about just this room? We're a church, we're a household of saints. We're kind of responsible for each other, to hold each other accountable, to pray for one another. Just this room would be so much weight on our Lord and Savior. Multiply that by the city of St. Louis, the highest crime rate in the nation. And then what about America? I mean, don't get me started. There is a weight that we can't even fathom just in this country. And then, of course, you take it to the whole world. I mean, we're talking all the way around Buddhism, Hinduism, Sudan, and all the violence there. What is the weight of the sins of the world? And not just the the world of today, but yesterday's world and tomorrow's world also. Can we even begin to imagine the weight of sin that Jesus did bear upon the cross? We can't. We can't even imagine it. I can't even imagine my own sin. 
let's say, for instance, that you could bear the weight of your own sin. I mean, the Bible explicitly says that you cannot. <laughs> you will go to hell. The wages of sin is death, and you cannot bear. But let's just pretend for a minute, for a minute, that the Catholics might be right, and you could bear it in purgatory. Do you want to? Who would want to? Why would you want to if Jesus already done did it? Why would it need to be paid for twice? <laughs> the Bible says that Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world, and so your sins have already been paid for. Why would you want to pay for them yourselves? My suggestion would be to trust in him. He's done it already. He did a good job. His sufferings were astonishing. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now, the other thing that we'll see is that his exaltation is also astonishing. The Bible tells us that he is high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. And those two words, high and lifted up, are sometimes used together in Scripture. And that's why we sing songs, right? High and lifted up, shining like you go. Right? We sing these songs. The words high and lifted up are used, well, they're used exactly four times in the Old Testament in combination. Incidentally, all four of those times are in the book of Isaiah. I like Isaiah. Three out of those four times, it is clear that the person that those words are talking about is Yahweh, is God in heaven. He is high and lifted up which tells us that this person, Yahweh, is God, and he's high, so high, th th those two words together just tell us he's, he's worthy, he's magnificent, he's God. The fourth time these words are used is in this very chapter. And this chapter is about the servant of God. So what does that mean? Well, obviously, it means that this servant of God who's sufferings are astonishing and whose exaltation will be astonishing is God. Jesus is God. You knew that. Some people will find that astonishing, <laughs> that this man who lived in Galilee so many years ago is God, that God came down and lived here. And Isaiah says he, this servant, will be high and lifted up. He will be lifted up as God. Kings, will have to shut their mouths. You can't get any higher than this exaltation. It's astonishing. Why? Why is the servant exalted? Well, Isaiah actually tells us in the last section where it says that it pleased the Lord to crush him and, and, and he will, you know, he will uh, be risen above every name. But let's look at what Paul says in Philippians. He tells us even more clearly, I think, why this person, Jesus, will be high and lifted up. Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, comma, even death on a cross, the astonishing sufferings that we just discussed. And then Paul says this, Therefore, and I'll repeat that, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. And so he is so high, so lifted up that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is God. He is greatly exalted. It's astonishing exaltation, in fact. Can you just imagine that with me, if you will? Because I don't know if you spend a lot of time thinking about this. I know I I don't. (laughs) Imagine Jesus in his element. Imagine Jesus at home in heaven, in his kingdom, on his throne. Imagine the lamb upon the throne. What does that look like in your head? Only two people that I know of in the Bible have seen that. Isaiah was one of them, and the apostle John was another. John, some way, I don't know how this happened, he just got taken up to heaven, and he saw Jesus. And he says in Revelation chapter 1, And I saw the Lord, and I fell as though dead. So he sees Jesus, and he goes, Holy, holy. Isaiah has the same story, in fact. In chapter 6, he says, I entered into the Holy of Holies, and there, on the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, lofty, exalted, and I fell as though dead and said, whoa, is me, I'm a dead man. Wow. I mean, I just get goosebumps when I think about how exalted our Savior is. I want to see him in his brilliance, but I only get to see him for like a second before I fall dead. <laughs> That's how amazing he is. In fact, I just think it's, it's crazy because Paul says in this passage that In heaven, everyone's going to be on their knees, proclaiming with their mouths, He is Lord. Everyone on earth is going to see him and go, boom, He is Lord. And everyone under the earth, whatever that means, I think I know, boom, He is Lord. How exalted is the Lord. Isaiah says he will be high and lifted up, and then he says, and he will be greatly exalted. Or your translation might say, very exalted. And what commentators will tell you, that word greatly or very is like a wobbly word. It's a word that reveals that the author, which is Isaiah, doesn't know what to say. He's like, I don't know what word to put here, but dude, it's totally exalted, right? It's, very, it's so very exalted. He has no, he, it's unexpressible to him. He's high and lifted up and like way exalted, man. <laughs> Isn't that true? Like, well, I need to get an amen here. Yeah, he's, ex- well, wait, maybe he's not. Is he? Exal- How high is your Jesus? That's what I'm kind of wondering. How exalted is Christ in your mind and heart? Is he high and lifted up? Is he, boom, dead man exalted? <laughs> or is he like your buddy, your homeboy? Spurgeon says, he is not yet exalted and extolled in any of our hearts as he deserves to be. Would you agree with that statement? I sure would. I, I, I don't see him like that. He's not exalted as he should be in my heart. If you agree with that, then let's answer this question. How high and exalted is your Jesus and how might you extol him more appropriately? Okay, so we've talked about this. He is astonishing in his sufferings. He is astonishing in his exaltation. And last but not least, he's, his message is astonishing. And, and here's kind of the way I look at it. Some people 
will see his sufferings as astonishing. Even fewer people will see his exaltation as astonishing. But I want to argue that everybody, the everybody, finds this message of his astonishing. Believers and unbelievers alike are astonished by his message. Now, the Apostle Paul quotes this very verse in Romans chapter 15, specifically those last two lines that says, and what they have not been told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. And Paul says that is the gospel. It's this message that the servant brings called the gospel. And I want to tell you tonight that the gospel is astonishing. It's astonishing to unbelievers, and it's astonishing, I would say, to believers. We find it unbelievably astonishing. So first, let me talk about unbelievers. The Bible's clear that for those who are unsaved, for those who are lost, for those who are perishing, it's foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are lost. It's astonishing to them. What? God became a man and a baby and died on a cross for the sins of the... Whatever. It's astonishing to think that one man could pay for the sins of the world. It's astonishing to think that God would require his son to pay for the sins of that world. It's an astonishing message. And for those who are perishing, the Bible says it's foolishness. But, and I love the way Paul says this, comma, to those who are being saved. It's like we're still being saved. For those who are being saved, it is, anyone know, the power of God. So for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. What's the power of God? This astonishing message. It is the message that saves us. It's the gospel that's the power of God that saves us. And quite frankly, we find it unbelievably astonishing. Let me explain to you why I think Christians find it astonishing. Because we don't believe it. We don't believe that the simple, clear presentation of the gospel has the power to save men and women. Instead, we want to add things to it. Instead, we want to say, it's this message plus no more listening to Led Zeppelin. It's, it's the message plus no more, you know, just add whatever you want. I mean, with that line right there, you can add so many things. In my, my years growing up in the church, it's funny the things that they had there. Country music, you know, I would add that one quickly. But, but, but you know, <laughs> the simple gospel message is unbelievably astonishing to us. We don't believe it. It's easier for us to believe that we need to add something to it. It's our nature. So I would say this. Last week we did this. We went through the gospel of John and talked about how clear and simple it is. Only believe and you will be saved. Only call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. It is free. It is the gift of God and it is not done by any work of man so that no man can boast. It is you're saved by faith alone, period, by grace alone, period. And here's what I think. If I began to preach this message like I want to, like I, you know, was a person with a little more energy, maybe a little more color, right? If I started to preach this message like I wanted to, some of you in this very room would say, I don't know. I feel like you're missing something. Sounds kind of like cheap grace. 
Easy believism to me. <laughs> those people, I've met them in my life, those people are afraid of the gospel. They're afraid of the gospel. John Piper says the gospel is a dangerous message. It is open to much abuse because it's dangerous. If I tell you you're saved by grace alone and you were saved 2,000 years ago, then you might think, well, then I can sin. And that's dangerous. But the gospel is dangerous. It's not cheap and it's not easy. I'll tell you why. It is not easy to believe that Jesus died for your sins and all you have to do is believe. Is that easy for you to believe? Not me. I want to prove that I'm worthy. I want to prove that I'm good enough. I want to do something. I'm a human. I'm a man. I can do things. It's also not cheap because I've already explained to you how astonishing were his sufferings and how astonishing is his exaltation. It is not cheap at all. He's a king in heaven. It is extravagant. It's not easy to believe. It's not cheap. But it is astonishing. The Apostle Paul, here, here, I'll say this. From the moment this gospel astonishing message was first proclaimed, it has been the seat of tension for centuries. Jesus had to battle against the Pharisees. They wanted to add something to it. Paul had to battle against the Judaizers, and he would not let them add anything to it. Don't you add circumcision? Don't you add dietary laws? Don't you add not listening to country music, right? You cannot add anything to it. Martin Luther had to battle the Papists, and he died on his deathbed saying, I cannot recant. I cannot. It is faith alone, period, and don't you dare put anything after that period. Whew, I like Luther. Spurgeon often says in his sermons that he has to fight the fundamentalists. <laughs> and I don't know what the fundamentalists look like in his day, but I've met a few in my day, and they're the ones who would say, that sounds like cheap grace and easy believers to me, brother. Heretic. <laughs> Paul goes through great pains in all of his letters to fight for the faith alone, grace alone, simplicity, clarity of the gospel. I mean, in every letter, Romans, Colossians, Galatians, I can point you verses where he's hitting people in the head saying, it's faith alone, don't you dare add anything to it. In fact, Romans would probably be the best where he says, he's, he's painting a picture of the gospel he says, here's the gospel, A and B, and well, that's it, A and B. Now, if you're paying attention, you're going to ask me, well, what then are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? So Paul's essentially saying, and he asks this question, this rhetorical question like five times in Romans. He's basically saying this, if you're listening to me explain the gospel, then rhetorically I'm imagining you're probably asking this question. Well, if that's the gospel, then I might as well go on sinning. Am I making sense? When Paul says, here's the gospel, I'm preaching it to you. Now that I've preached it to you, you're probably wondering, you might ask me even, if that's the gospel, then why don't I go on sinning? Paul knows that the gospel is dangerous. It makes people think, if that's the gospel, then I should go on sinning. And Paul could say, nope. If you're thinking that, then it's proof that you're not a Christian and you're going to hell. He could have said that, right? Actually, he couldn't have said that, but he, he, I mean, he could have. You know what I'm saying? He could have said, if that's the way you're thinking, then you've lost your salvation because you don't really believe it. 
No, that's not what he says. He says, this is the gospel, and if you're tracking what I'm saying, then this is probably what you're thinking. I should go on sinning, but may it never be. Why would you run to the sin that he died for? Don't, don't do that. That's what Paul is saying. The gospel is so clear and so dangerous that if you hear it clearly, it's dangerous. We don't want to tell our kids that. Hey, Jesus died for your sins. Because then they might go sin. But that's the gospel. That is why it's astonishing. So I've got three illustrations, maybe five. First, in this letter, in Isaiah, in this song, do you notice what man does in the song? We're mentioned a lot, actually. We're in the song a bunch. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced through for us. Our sin was laid upon him. So we're in, it's all about us, right? Not really, it's all about him, but it's all about us in there. We're in there, what do we do? Everything's passive. There's only one thing that's active in the song. Did you see it? We are sheep who've gone astray and turned to our own way. That's what we do. What do we do? We go our own way. What does he do? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, I could sing a song. Jesus does it all. Jesus paid it all. Jesus does it all. Here's another illustration. In this, in this section, the first verse, it says that he will sprinkle. Did you notice that? It says he will sprinkle many nations. Now that word may not have jumped off the page for you, but if you were a Jew, it would have jumped off the page. Because that word sprinkle calls to mind the Day of Atonement. You know what the Day of Atonement is. It's an amazing day. It's a day in which God says, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. If you kill a goat and you confess your sins, I'll forgive the whole village of all their sins. One day a year, I'll forgive all the sins of that year. Isn't God amazing? <laughs> so on that day, the high priest would kill a goat. He would take a hyssop branch. He would dip it in the goat's blood. He would tell all the people to circle around the tent of meeting, around the outer skirt of that tent, and they would all pray and confess their sin. And then the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of that goat on the mercy seat of God. The mercy seat was the seat of the ark that was inside the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle that blood on the seat for the day of atonement, to atone for the sins of all of Israel for the past 12 months, I guess. What do the people do? They stand outside the tent, and they wait to see if God will accept the blood. If he doesn't, then they got to pull that priest out of there, right? <laughs> we do nothing but wait to see, will God accept the blood? Here's another story. God's going to lead Israel out of Egypt. He says, take a lamb. Kill it. <laughs> Did you see this? This is interesting to me. Take a hyssop branch. It's again, another hyssop branch. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood, just like the Day of Atonement, and then put it in that basin and then touch the doorposts with the blood. And I, right here it says, touch the doorpost. But if I were there, I would have saturated the doorpost with that hyssop blood. And then scripture says that when he sees the blood on the doorposts, the Lord will Passover, that's where we get the word Passover lamb, and he will not allow the destroyer to enter into your house to strike you. So again, what does man do? We kill a lamb, we put the blood with the hyssop branch on the door, and then we go inside and watch hockey. And we wait to see, will he accept the blood? That's all we do. I hope the blood's enough. 
Hey, can I ask you a question? Do you think the blood's enough? Oh, man, Charles, help me out. Do you think the blood's enough? Amen, brother. The blood's enough. <laughs> Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Listen to what Spurgeon says. This is bold. This is bold. God does not say, comma, open quote, when I see your estimate of the blood of Christ. I told you this is bold. Comma, I will pass over you, semicolon. No. <laughs> but when I see, what's that? The blood. It's not your estimate of that blood. It is the blood that saves you. And Spurgeon says, as I've said before, that magnificent, solitary blood must be alone. It's not how much gumption you have. It's not how much energy you put in thinking about whether or not the blood is good enough. It's not how often you talk about the blood. It is only the blood. Is this not an astonishing message? It is. Let me give you one more illustration that really has helped me because I told you that this has been the hotbed of tension for centuries. It still is today. Very much so today. Um, Keller often uses this illustration, which I'm so glad he did because it helped me tremendously. He says, there are so many illustrations about faith, right? The way we complicate this as we try to define what faith is, right? We're saved by faith alone. Well, what is faith really? If you have real faith, you won't listen to country music, amen? If you have real faith, you cannot eat at Hardee's because that place is of the devil. If you have real faith, right? This is what we do. And Keller says there's so many illustrations about faith, and they all fail, all of them, even the one I'm about to use. But most of them fell horribly. I don't like any of them. I grew up listening to some of these, and I would like pay guest speakers to come in, and they give this one illustration that I wanted to shoot them and say, stop, stop, you're ruining our kids. This is not the right illustration. The best one that I've heard is the one that Keller gives, and it says this. Faith is like this. Imagine yourself running. Okay, you're running. And then you fall off of a cliff, and you're falling. Ah, falling off of a cliff. And you grab a branch. You're hanging onto the branch. That's faith. Where's your faith? In the branch, right? I hope this branch, I have faith that this branch is going to hold me up. It's gonna, I don't know anything about this branch. I don't know how big it is. I don't know how little it is. I'm just holding on to it, and I have enough faith to hold on to this branch. It's not your estimation of the branch. You know what? I wish this branch was a little bigger. <laughs> it's not the faith that you muster up inside of your head. I believe, I believe, I believe in this branch. Amen, brother. I believe in it. Ugh, I believe in it. That's not what saves you. Your faith in your faith doesn't save you. Your faith in the branch doth save you. <laughs> but we do it all the way wrong, wrong, don't we? We say, I need to have faith in my faith for this branch to save me. It's not your faith in your faith. It's your faith in the branch. It's not your estimate of your faith It's or of the blood. It's the blood. And this is an astonishing message. And it's open to much abuse. And if you're honest, as I will be, you abuse it. And so doth I. Some of you are thinking, I don't know. So I'm going to give you a chance to weigh in. All right, weigh in, please. We're a church. We hold each other accountable. Let's talk about this. I want to talk about it. So here's the question. How does the simple presentation of the gospel message astonish you? 
Or in other words, here's a chance for you to weigh in and see if you think it's as astonishing as I just portrayed it. Somehow in the history of the gospel, we turned it into religion. We turned it into a way, and the world knows this, whether they've ever been to church or not, they know that Christians equals don't do X and do Y. And depending on what church you're in, the X and Y can be really ridiculous. Like you have to go to church and Sunday school. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me wake up on Sunday morning and say, oh, I want to go to church. That makes me say, this is my duty. I'm going to church. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me want to say, I want to write a check for 10% of my salary today. That doesn't make me want to do that. That makes me say, well, I'll give my version of 10%, right? We've turned it into a religion. But what if we really do believe in the astonishing message of the gospel, that the blood is enough, and you're a wicked, evil sinner, and the weight of that sin has already been borne by Jesus? Does that make you want to get up and say, I want to exalt him. I want to glorify him. He, I'll give him my life. I'll give him my all. I'll give him my book. Let him write the check. And what we have communicated to them out there is the former, not the latter. Why did we do that? Why did you older people do that to me? <laughs> and Lord, please don't let me do that to my kids. I want them to see how astonishing the person of Christ is so that when they come to church, they will be astonished and amazed and they will exalt him and they will tell people about this astonishing message that all you have to do is believe in the God who loves you so much that he gave his only son to die for you so that if you believe, tithe 10% and go to church every week, you will be saved. Oh, wait, 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 I said that wrong. If you believe, you'll be saved. Will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for communion? Father in heaven, I want to want to exalt you as you should be exalted. I, I want to exalt you with my life because I love you and because you are magnificent and because you are beautiful and because you are amazing and because you are astonishing and because you suffered astonishingly for my sin and because you are exalted and, and an astonishing way in your heaven, in your throne. And I want my exalting of you to spill over into this community here in O'Fallon that other people will say, Jesus is astonishing. And he saved a wretch like me. His blood saved a wretch like me. He was sprinkled for me. So Father, I pray that as we take communion now,